You are listening to The Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast. If you've heard any of the recent episodes of The Vincast, you would know that I've had some guests from other parts of the world, uh, United States, China. This week's guest is from New Zealand. But um, I have a huge back catalogue of episodes with guests uh, who make wine here in Australia. And you can actually purchase some of those fantastic wines from Different Drop. DifferentDrop.com is an online wine store specialising in Australian wines of authenticity, provenance and innovation. Uh, usually they're made by um, family-owned wineries using really um, sustainable practices, some really exciting styles of wine from regions and varieties you may be familiar with and some you may not be familiar with. So if you go to differentdrop.com uh, and put in their special code IntrepidWino at purchase, the guys will give you a 10% discount on any purchase. And if you're specifically interested in the wines of certain guests, go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid wino and they've actually uh, collated all of the wines they have available from guests of this podcast so thank you very much guys for listening to another episode uh, and for your ongoing support and please support the guests by buying some of their wines from different drop On episode 87 of the Vincast, I chat with Jules Van Costello, a New Zealand wine writer, restaurateur, who is putting together an exciting new book all about new wines in New Zealand. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And if you are a new listener of the podcast, then welcome. It is so fantastic to have you on board. Um, but as you heard in the intro, this is episode 87. There is a huge, huge back catalogue of episodes, uh, which you can find on my website, intrepidwino.com, under the Vincast section. But uh, you can actually subscribe to the podcast on a huge range of uh, of podcast hosting apps and programs, the best one being iTunes. So if you hit that subscribe button, you're basically going to get the, the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. And it's also a really fantastic way to provide some feedback to myself and to the guests who uh, generously donate their time by leaving a rating and review. So please go to the Vincast page on iTunes, hit that subscribe button and leave me a rating and review. It really does help me out a lot and gets the word out to other wine lovers just like yourself. Last week, I think, last episode, I had a bit of a shout out uh, to this week's guest who is a, a new listener of the podcast and he got in contact because he wanted to uh, introduce himself and also tell me about a, a Kickstarter uh, campaign that he's running at the moment uh, about uh, writing a book about New Zealand wine. So Jules Van Costello, uh, who is uh, he's also a restaurateur, uh, he, um, we jumped onto Skype and we had a chat about his background and he told me all about why he's excited about New Zealand wines at the moment. And uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Please stick around to the end so you can find out how you can support Jules and how you can get in contact with both of us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Jules, a very good evening uh, to you um, in Wellington, I believe. You're joining me uh, this evening. I am indeed. Thank you. Uh, and welcome on the Vincast. Thank you, of course, for getting in contact with me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. It's thank you for um for doing this at at very very little notice. Uh, so, um, Jules, um, as a, a a new listener of the podcast, uh, from the sounds of it, an avid listener, uh, you would know that I start every episode by asking my guests if they can remember the first interaction they had with wine that set them on the path of wanting to to follow a, a career. Yeah, so it's a funny one for me. I grew up in Hawke's Bay, um, which is, or which was at the time, the the most densely planted wine region in New Zealand, and now has been totally eclipsed 
um, by Marlborough. And I and, just and Otago you know, as well. Or is I'm Otago not still 100% a bit less? sure of that because I, 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 I believe that Otago has been pretty. It has seen a lot of investment in the last ten or fifteen years. Oh yeah, certainly in terms of growth, Otago has been huge. I'm not a hundred percent sure on on sort of the area around Divine. I still think Hawke's Bay is the second, but I could be dead wrong on that. Mm. Um, but off the top of my head, I, I'm pretty sure it's Hawke's Bay. Okay, so you grew so anyway, up in in Hawke's Bay. Yeah, so I grew up in Hawke's Bay. Um, my mum drank cask wine, um, usually Australian cask wine, and so we didn't really have sort of really fine wine in the house. But I wine knew still a few wine. people. But it's, it's, it's wine barely. is still wine. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but I noticed that people, especially in my teens, I noticed that people had a reverence for one particular wine called Coleraine, um, which is a Cabernet blend from the from the Havelock Hills. And actually back then in the vintages that um, that they would have been drinking, they were some pretty, and they still are some pretty fantastic wines. Um, was, that, and it, was that tomato or did they buy that it? Is, yeah, tom- tomato coloring. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and it was, it was, it was, and still is a fantastic wine. Um, there are obviously a lot of other, other really awesome um, Cabernet blends and so forth on the market now. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I noticed that people had such a reverence for this this wine from one vineyard that was basically I drove past or I drove past it with my mum most days, and that idea that wine um, before it even really tasted it came from a place was really exciting, mm. and um, eventually ended up tasting it. Um, I worked just down the road at um, Black Barn for the, I think it was the second summer that they were open um, and then got exposed to some some really cool wines. And then um, the first year of university, I worked at a really awesome wine bar, um, Arbitrage. And they actually had some really awesome aged wines, which again was the first time I'd ever seen it. And this would have been 2001-ish. Mm. And I tried for the first time um, some De Bortley Noble one from the 84 and 85 vintages, and that must have been the first um, vintages of that wine. And they were really cool. And it was both that aspect of, of place, that, that a wine can come from one place and that that makes it really special, but also that idea of of ageability and that so place and time and that I was tasting a wine that was as old as me. Um, and then working in the restaurant industry, got sort of exposed to more and more exciting wines and, yeah, just sort of fell in love. Went to law school and dropped out and kept drinking. Uh, growing up in Hawke's Bay, um, I'm assuming, well, wine probably would have been the, if, if not the, then certainly one of the most important industries there. Were you sort of friends with with other kids at school whose parents were involved in the wine industry? Um, did you get exposed to, to, to the wine industry in that way at all? Not so much. Like I knew, I knew kids whose parents were winemakers and so forth, yeah. but we weren't, I mean, Wine is wine is an important part of of Hawke's Bay, especially especially now. Um, and and wine, certainly, and wine and, tourism as well. And wine tourism, well, wine tourism particularly now. But I mean, it was just one of a multitude of of agriculture and horticultural businesses that that sort of part of New Zealand is is fueled by. Yeah. And I mean, there are two two town or two cities now side by side, Napier and Hastings. And I mean, both of those are, are, are well established cities with sort of all sorts of different um, businesses. So, mm-hmm. so I saw it there, and especially in terms of the landscape coming from Havelock North, um, you drive past vineyards, but you'd also drive past orchards and farms and so forth. And um, it's probably only in the last oh, 12 years um, that it's become such an important uh such an important uh, business, both from a tourism, but then also from a uh, from a primary production perspective. Mm. So, uh, being a, a, a really important agricultural part of New Zealand, was food important? You know, as far as reasonably high quality um, restaurants, cuisine, that kind of thing. Was there was there a, a bit of a focus on sustainable produce at all? Do you mean as I was growing up? Yeah, or is that or yeah, is that also I'm- been more recent? Certainly, certainly, food was. I, th- I think the the aspects of sustainable food are, are much more recent. 
Um, but certainly food was really important. I mean, both both my mum and my stepdad um, worked for uh, a company called Waddies. Um, so it's part of the Heinz Corporation now. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I remember having to go out and sort of do do sugar tests on peas in, during harvest and things like that. Um, and likewise, I mean, I think the – their Hawke's Bay is sort of famous for producing Waddy's tomato sauce, um, which is put on almost everything here at times. Do they use and, baked beans um, as well? Oh, they still do. They still do. I thought can't yeah, stand baked beans. Yeah, I love beans, but but the the gooey, squishy baked beans in a can don't do anything for me. Refried beans are much nicer. Refried beans are awesome. Um, so but, so was food important in at, at home? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um. I mean, I grew up in a, in a single single parent family, so mum was working sort of probably forty five hours a week, um, and but she is she is a great cook, um, mm. and likewise, my grandma particularly um, was an amazing cook and baker. So we would, um, I mean, through the week, food was um, practical, but but then on the weekends, particularly, um, yeah, food became more and more important. And then mm. I sort of, I, I mean, I love to cook and I sort of started cooking more and more. Um, have never done so professionally. But, um, yeah, food food is has always been really important. So um, through high school, did you have any particular uh, areas to study that you were focused on or how did you end up like, going to you'd eventually study uh, law and then obviously dropping out? Yeah, um, so I was really involved in, in theatre at high school particularly, um, and I guess sort of I'm, in, I, I'm interested in the arts and, and have always been both from a sort of someone who wants to go see theatre and, and do theatre and then, yeah, in high school that was that was all, all through being mm. a child that was that was theatre, whether it's community or school or, or what have you. Um, and then yeah, went to went to Wellington to study university. Was involved in theatre, but then I found this other thing which was really cool, which was restaurants and food and wine, and um, and sort of fell in love, especially to begin with the the culture of it. Um, sort of working really working a really really hard busy shift, and then going out to drink really cool wines, often in sort of crazy places like um, taking BYO to um, there's a restaurant, um, a grill that's open all hours called the Green Parrot, um, and they used to allow BYO, so occasionally we'd sort of show up with really awesome bottles of wine and drink cool wine in the middle of the night with um, big steaks and hunks of bread and butter, and it was that sort of that aspect of, of the, the social life of the industry was really fun mm. um, and progressed through university came out with a with a um, arts degree and um, was much more interested in the the professional life of of restaurants as well as as well as wine but sort of where the two um, converge what was a wine market in New Zealand like at that time it, was it just almost 100% New Zealand wines or Australian wines very strong? Did you get opportunities to look at wines from, you know, other parts of the world as well? I mean, I was lucky in that I worked in some very cool places. So both Arbitrage and Citron, which was a fine dining restaurant. So Arbitrage had a great, um, I was one of sort of one of the, one of the first real um, sort of high upmarket wine bars and unfortunately they've all sort of died in Wellington recently um, and so they had a list of probably 50 wines by the glass um, of which at least half of them were international wines and that ranged from from sort of cheap and cheerful um, South American Malbecs um, through to sort of white varieties from, from the south of France at sort of $8 a glass through to um, decent Burgundy and decent um, known Bordeaux chateaus at sort of the $25 mark by the glass. Mm. And then um, because one of the ways that this restaurant was established was that they um, bought wine or, or um, took wine on consignment from a few private sellers, there were some really, really interested keen wine buffs who would come in and drink regularly um, some very cool 
particularly French, um, a little bit of Italian, so um, lots of Burgundy, a little bit of Bordeaux, um, and you sort of got exposed to the classics, and I guess that's kind of a good way to start. Um, your education is, is, is with those classics, and then, um, then go from there. I mean, there's always been an interest in Australian wine's really funny because I worked for a rep for a while here. I worked as a rep for a while here too. And um, Australian wine is a big market for affordable stuff. And there's a small market for the high-end cult wines of Australia. Um, what what do you mean by cult? Ah, uh, I mean... Do you mean like iconic or... Yeah, iconic, exactly, okay. iconic. So, um, I mean, I guess the best example was the basically anything listed in that Langdon's. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the iconic wines, as well as some some truly cult wines produced in very very small quantities. Mm. Um, but there's not a lot of demand for Australian wine between those two extremes. Um, Why do you think that is? Is is it a, a taste thing, or is it a Oh, we don't need oh, I, you know, to drink Australian. We've got heaps of good New Zealand wine. I think it's a case of I think it's a case of we don't need to drink Australian. We've got heaps of cool New Zealand yeah. wine. Okay, and I guess for a certain degree, it's a it's a value for money proposition. Mm. So, I mean, one of my favourite wines that I was selling um, a wee while ago was the Xanadu Chardonnay, and mm-hmm. we had the 2010 vintage, which was which is a fantastic wine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would come onto the market at Roughly the same price as something like the Tomato Elston, which is not not a wine that I love, but it's a very very well known, um, really sound, rich New Zealand Chardonnay, and so it's it's well known, and so it's just they just become easier sells in that regard. Because yeah. um, I mean, Australia is a really Australia is a very different market for wine. I spent a little bit of time there over there last year, and that there's such a large domestic market for Australian wine. And, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons that the growth of natural wine in Australia has been, been phenomenal compared to New Zealand, where we're only just starting, is that there's, there's always been such demand for Australian wine. And there are a lot of Australian producers who produce wine for the Australian market, where most serious New Zealand producers tend to produce wine for export because everywhere else is much bigger than we are. Mm. I, I I wondered if there was a market in New Zealand for the kind of wines made in Australia that sort of can't be produced in New Zealand, mostly due to climate. You know, warmer climate, Australian region. Um, you know, Shiraz, Cabernets, that sort of thing. I wondered if they had a market in New Zealand, but but it sounds like that that there wasn't necessarily as much of the the taste people liked. It seems like people liked the cooler climate wines, which to me is actually a little bit more exciting if I'm honest. Oh, there's, I mean, there's certainly, there certainly is a market for those wines and there are, there are still people who come into the restaurant and go, I want an Australian Shiraz or I want an Australian Cabernet. Yeah. Um, but I think that market is, is quite small and yeah. is, is dwindling. I mean, yeah, having been on the other side where I need to sell Australian wines, certainly other than affordable stuff, it, it becomes a hard sell when you're comparing, say, a Yarra, um, a Yarra Shiraz, or even a sort of um, a Barossa Shiraz to mm. to a Hawke's Bay Syrah, where it being so close, people have relationships and so forth, and and better name recognition and all those sort of things. What well, what about the market for for other imported wines? It sounds like French wines pretty strong. Do you, do you get the opportunity to look at wines from say North America or South America? Uh, South America, yes. Again, that's probably a value proposition. Um, things like Malbecs, Caminares, South America, and and I guess the same is true to a certain extent of of some South African wine, is that they can produce styles that that we simply can't, mm-hmm. and so. If those styles offer value, um, there is there is demand. I think there's a growing interest in the more serious examples of those wines here because they, if you pay a little bit more, um, some of those wines can really blow people out of the water. There's some fantastic wines there. Um, but, the, yeah, the old world, certainly, um, France, Italy, 
a little bit of German wine that, that um, and Spain especially has has been strong. And I guess I guess a lot of that is driven by sort of the mid range of the market where where wines sort of compete with with New Zealand wines particularly and can offer value. To a certain extent, it sounds similar to Australia in, in, in that, you know, Australia has a huge domestic um, demand for Australian wines um, and the value proposition is where New Zealand has a lot of success uh, and there's, I think there's a lot of appreciation for very premium quality New Zealand wines, but the market for them isn't super strong because people tend to play it safe and and go with a, certainly a region, possibly even a variety that they're much more comfortable with from Australia. And then you get you know like a, a pretty big representation. I, I, I don't know what New Zealand's like for champagne, but Australia's very strong with champagne. And then you get you know Bordeaux, Burgundy. Um, other French regions, Italy's a lot stronger than it was. Spain's still pretty good. Germany doesn't sell heaps. Uh, you know, you see bits and pieces from South America again. You know, which are the more value-driven products. But um, but yeah, it sounds fairly similar. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, I would agree. Champagne's not certainly not as big here as as it is in Australia. Um, I mean, Australians tend to be quite big consumers of champagne. Sparkling um, wine in general. Yeah, sparkling wine in general. And I mean I guess I guess that's possibly a climatic thing. Like I want I want to drink sparkling wine it, it's when the hot, weather is I want cold. Yeah. Um whereas we do have a market for champagne, but it's it's a lot smaller and partly that's because the market itself is a lot smaller and as a result there's sort of less competition in it. It's very much driven by the big brands. Yeah. Um, you don't yeah. have much market for grower champagne, like for that kind of thing. Oh, there's a there's a small um, and growing market for grower champagne, mm. but it's a really hard sell. Niche, yeah. Um, yeah, it's niche, and it, it, I mean, I guess I guess in a similar way to natural wine um, or a style like orange wine is, it probably is always going to be niche. Um, Especially in a, uh, in in somewhere like New Zealand, because there there is only so much of it. And but I, I guess the the difference with something like, as you say, you know, low intervention skin contact wines, for example, is that even though the market for them is very very small, they seem to be getting a lot of attention. You know, um, sommeliers, wine writers are talking about these kind of wines, whereas um, some of the other niche wines possibly don't get talked about as much. Yeah, I I do agree with you, but I think that's possibly, uh, especially in New Zealand, a a sign or sign of the times thing, where where those sort of wines are very popular right now. They weren't two years ago, um, and I think I mean I certainly believe they're here to stay, and there are some fantastic ones around. But in and it's also exciting to see conventional producers adopt some of those techniques. Um, and mainstream wines. But I think that in two years, to a certain degree, we will have found something else that is equally as exciting, and that could be another sort of emerging grape variety, or it could be, I mean, we all we all sort of want it to be Riesling again <laughs> um, in the industry, um, and it sort of always seems to slip past. But, I mean, I think to a certain degree that the, the orange wine thing particularly is a trend. I think it's a good one that will stay as part of um, the complete wine world, but there will be other things that come and are interesting to sommeliers because, um, I mean, coming from covering the beer world as well as the wine world, um, I see that there are always a group of people who want something new, Mm. and that has been orange, natural, those sort of wines recently. And it will be something else in a couple of years, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say that say that those sort of wines are not here to stay in some in some form or other. And they become as they become sort of less popular among the really sort of um, progressive sommeliers and merchants. They'll actually probably filter down into becoming more 
more mainstream. And you're seeing that in, I mean, I think we're seeing that in New Zealand to a certain certain degree with particular styles of those wines where, where to start with, there was some very extreme skin fermented wines, very, very tannic, very difficult for a lot of consumers. And now that there, now there are some that, yeah, they're skin fermented wines, but they're, they're a lot more approachable. Um, they're made with, with varieties, particularly things like Gewürztraminer, so that even if someone has only a very, very low knowledge of wine, you can still taste the variety through through the technique um, and those sort of things. And, yeah, they're becoming becoming more mainstream. But as they do that, something else has to replace um, them or the, the cult interest. Yeah. So how did you go apart from, you know, just drinking and tasting uh, with work and then in, as, as far as socialising, how did you go about kind of learning more about wine? Um, I guess I guess I sort of have that. That was a handful of people um, who I worked with. Um, so, so sommeliers that I sort of worked under. Um, it's one amazing woman who was the head um, or sommelier at, at Arbitrage when it first opened, Vicky Griffith, I think her surname was. And um, she's actually not working in the wine industry anymore, which is a real shame. But she just had such a such an infectious love of, of wine um, that it was hard sort of not to become more and more interested. Mm. And likewise, I worked with, um, at Citron, I worked with um, an amazing um, now Master of Wine, Stephen Wong, who sort of just received his MW. Um, and he'd been sort of working on that. And this is all at least eight years ago um, because my son's eight now and he was born when I was working there. Um, so he's just received his Master of Wine. But he sort of had a very different approach, a much more intellectual approach. And I guess working around some really um, infectious wine people, all of whom had really different approaches, sort of sort of taught me that that what you can sort of use wine to express who you are um, via a wine list or who the restaurant is um, in lots of different ways. And yeah, why? I mean, for me, the, the aspect of wine is much more. Um, that sort of academic side, thinking about the the aspects of how how wine came to taste and and what role the vineyard played and what role viticulture played and ro- what role the winemaker played and and then the economics of of getting say a bottle of Premier Cru Burgundy from France to New Zealand, but ultimately that's not what most consumers want to hear. They want to know that they're spending whatever they're spending, they're going to get something that's worth worthwhile and with their money and is going to be enjoyable in whatever sort of the context of enjoyment that they that they want is and sort of making wine engaging for people is, is has always been really fun mm. many apologies for interrupting another fascinating vincast chat but i wanted to talk about another of the vincast supporters which is halliday's wine companion uh, James Halliday, of course, is considered to be the godfather of Australian wine, was instrumental in improving wine education and, and appreciation in Australia, uh, and he started the uh, annual guide to Australian wines. But he was also involved with the establishment of a fantastic um, regular wine magazine, which is called Halliday, uh, and uh, an online resource, which is at winecompanion.com.au. Uh, they have information about particularly about Australian wines, but you can also find some fantastic articles and tasting notes from wines from all over the world. Uh, and as a special uh, bonus to listeners and subscribers of the Vincast, uh, if you go to the One Companion website and you look at any of the sub- subscription packages, if you put in the code INTREPID30, then they will give you a 30% discount, which is a fantastic offer uh, not to be missed out on. Uh, and of course, I really appreciate you supporting the podcast and uh, thank you very much Halliday's Wine Companion. So, um, how how did the the path, uh, the career path, progress beyond um, beyond those restaurants? So I yeah, so I was working at Citron, and I had a little boy, Remy, um, 
and we were living in Wellington at the time. Um, this was with his mum, um, and sort of we decided that city life wasn't for us at the time, and so I moved to um, to Otago, which is an awesome restaurant called Riverstone Kitchen, um, who then they won Cuisine Restaurant of the Year a few years ago, um, and was living in this small town, had a little bit more time on my hands because I wasn't sort of surrounded by the trappings of being in the city, and um, started to do some more and more writing, which is something that I had done sort of in, in – basically as, as a blogger and, and student media and things like that in university and um, started doing a little bit of writing here and there for a couple of small magazines um, and, yeah, did did more and more until it became a real part of sort of who I am and what I do. Um, and then as, as craft beer became more and more important in the New Zealand marketplace, I sort of – I've always been one of the – one of the people who see less distinction between wine and beer. For me, it's all something that you can drink and something that goes well with food and particularly in a restaurant context. And I don't necessarily feel like a wine or a beer. I feel like something to drink. And if that's a Sauvignon Blanc, it could also be a Pilster. Or if mm-hmm. that's a glass of, if I feel like something big and warming, that could equally be an Imperial Stout or or a gigantic Cabernet or whatever. So, I yeah. I started writing a little bit more about beer, um, more in the context of wine. So there might be a wine column that I was writing in a magazine and occasionally I'd throw in a beer or two. But as 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 beer became, or craft beer particularly, became more and more important in New Zealand um, and it already had a pretty crowded market for people writing about wine, um, I decided to, to focus more on that. So I write sort of write about beer more than I write about wine most of the time. Um, so Wine NZ, which is a New Zealand wine magazine, I'm actually their beer columnist. Uh, <laughs> and it's, but it's exciting to see that a beer – oh, sorry, a wine magazine now also has a beer columnist as well as as well as a lot of other things, and yeah. So uh, why do you think that there's so much interest in, in, in craft beer in New Zealand? Uh, you know, I get, the same reason I guess it's probably in Australia. Yeah, I guess – if you compare it to wine, it's a it's a lot more democratic. Um, so if we're talking about, I mean, even if we're you talking mean like about it New doesn't Zealand, have the same associations with, I guess, wealthy or snobby people. Dare we say, you know, education or anything like that. Beer is a lot more um, egalitarian. Yeah, exactly. But but both both in that cultural sense, but also in a financial sense. Sure. Um, so for people who want to try things that are regarded as some of the world's best to, to do that with wine becomes prohibitively expensive very, very quickly. So even, even and, and supply becomes an issue as well. Well, I mean, supply is probably of those sort of beers, supply is probably more of an issue in the beer industry than it is in the wine industry. Okay. Um, because it's not the cost of beers or it's not the cost of the very best beers that are hard it's actually getting to them or getting them to you mm. um but it's it's a different um it's it's a different way of looking at it where we're trying i mean there's a brewery in vermont called hill farmstead and they are now producing some of the most um in-demand beers in the world and basically you have to go to the brewery or three or four bars around the brewery to get those beers um so people can create really fun, exciting trips out of going to a brewery like that. And that could be from New Zealand um, or that could be from a different part of the USA. And that's, that's, that's how a lot of beer, beer lovers might spend the same sort of money that serious wine lovers would spend on one bottle of wine. Um, and so, I mean, even here in New Zealand and it's, it's, Having seen the Australian beer market, it's much easier to get the very best beers in the world in Australia. But they're priced beers that sort of rate sort of in the top one percent of world beers on sites like Rate Beer and Untapped, like like Canteon like, or something like that. Yeah, like the Canteon sours or um, all sorts of things. Um, they're only priced at they're priced at a relatively reasonable. Um, 
amount over what, say, a domestic example of those sort of styles would be. Mm. Um, and like I guess a, like other- a once-a-year beer would be, what, like $30 or something like that, 30 or $40, whereas a once-a-year wine might be 100 or more. Exactly, yep. yeah. And and so people can people can afford beer and they can afford to experiment. And I guess that's the, that's the biggest thing is that, I mean, ultimately – and we see this in the restaurant program, restaurant by the glass program all the time. People don't mind spending twelve dollars on a wine, on a glass of wine they don't, they might not enjoy. Mm. People do have an issue with spending fifteen, twenty, twenty five dollars on a glass of wine they might they might not enjoy. Um, and not everyone is sort of um, has has the has enough balls to actually go. Look, you've recommended this. I really don't like it. Take it back. Which is, if that's the case, is perfectly reasonable. Um, and so you can get really great beers in, say, a three thirty ml bottle or a six fifty ml bottle for between six and twenty dollars New Zealand. And yeah, there are some that are much more expensive. And but you're trying some of the most exciting beer in the world. And if you don't like a beer at six dollars, even twenty dollars for a big bottle, it's not the end of the world. Whereas if you spend um Forty, fifty dollars on a bottle of wine, and you don't enjoy it. Then Particularly if it's in a restaurant, it's going to be even more expensive. Yeah, exactly. So, how did you um, end up sort of writing the, the the beer book? Well, I'd wanted to write a book, um, and I actually wanted to write a wine book for quite a quite a while. And I thought about sort of different ways of doing it, and um, I talked to some publishers and sort of looked at the state of wine writing in New Zealand and basically was told, and I think I wasn't wrong uh, or they weren't wrong, that there are a lot of people writing about wine in New Zealand. Um, yes, some people know who you are, but not that many. Um, and you're not going to get this book published. Uh, so I sort of went back to the drawing board and as I became more and more interested in beer, I went, like, why isn't there a guidebook to New Zealand beer? There are so many breweries now and I think, I mean, the brood covers about 140 and there's now at least 160. Um, it's really hard for consumers to find interesting beers other than from breweries that have a massive profile. Yet there are so many really good breweries out there who make really cool beer um, and only sort of the top, say, 5% actually get get talked about very often. So, like, why don't I, why don't, like, there's a gap in the market for this. So, so let's do it. And, again, I pitched it to a couple of publishing companies. They didn't seem particularly interested. Um, so I went, I'll do it myself. Went to Kickstarter and spent a month um, basically ringing brewers, ringing other beer writers, ringing everyone I know going, hey, come on board. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to achieve. It's not for me. It's it's for you. Um, but from a, from a long-term perspective of wanting to write about, about wine and beer and food, in the long term it was, it was sort of calculated. It was here's a book that hasn't been written that there is demand for. So I'm going to start with this sort of thing. Um, and likewise with the current Kickstarter, um, I sort of saw other books from other writers writing about other countries and went, I think it's time for, for New Zealand wine to be sort of looked at in a different context. And, and so that's what I'm trying to do. So tell me about the, the current Kickstarter campaign, which is going to be your second book. Yeah, my second book. So the book is called, um, or the, the project is called Aotearoa Nouveau. And I say the project's called that because, um, I mean, with Brood, uh, we had a name which was Kiwi Craft. And when it came to the stage of publishers being interested in the book, um, because I demonstrated the market, that the name thing became an issue and we ended up going with Brood. So um, basically it's, it's a look at the new New Zealand, um, but... The term the new New Zealand, unlike, say, the new Australia or the new California, doesn't sound very good. So I sort of thought about names and things like that and came away with postmodern New Zealand wine. And I guess that whole that whole sense of 
post-modernity, and it sounds really pretentious, but it's not, um, is a really good way of looking at, say, new producers. And that could be, by new, I mean, that could be a producer who is brand new, has only been making one for a few vintages. But that could also mean a producer like, I mean, Milton and Gisborne's a really good example, because they have, in the last few years, started making some really interesting, really different styles of wine that are that are just as new as as a whole lot of other producers. And so, yeah, that, that whole postmodern New Zealand wine is, is we have what modern wine is, which is a really globalised market, um, which is dominated by a few publications who can, to a certain degree, um, make or break a certain pr- or producers. So... As a result, there's that. I mean, we refer to it as parkerization, but it's 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 globalization of wine styles, and and for me, that that postmodern um, postmodern wines are a reaction to that, and that could be going completely against the grain, um, as a lot of natural winemakers do. But it could also be almost um, hamming that 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 model, where you see some producers who who've seen how successful, say, Californian Cabernet producers have been and gone, look, instead of producing, instead of trying to produce hundreds of thousands of bottles and turn that into something profitable at, say, $25, $30 a bottle, I'm going to make 200, 300 cases of any given wine. But because it is so rare, I'm going to sell it at, at a at a massive um, a massive sort of a massive price because I believe that the quality of it combined with its rarity will actually drive demand and that's that again is is a reaction to that sort of wine modernity mm. um, it's yeah hamming sort of certain certain things that have happened in the market and yeah there's all sorts of ways that people react to that but that that's why um, I don't think I've explained it that well but that's why um, that's why I chose the name. So is new essentially what's what's happening now and what's going to influence the future? Or are you talking about certain styles of wine being produced? Are you going to focus on different regions? So, yeah, so new is what's happening. I mean, what's happening, been happening in the last few years and then what's going to happen or, or sort of my projections of what's going to happen. Um, but it's not just winemaking and grape growing it's it's how wine is sold um so for instance we've got a producer over here um east hope family vineyard um and so that's rod east hope who was the head winemaker at craggy craggy range for a wee while he got a lot of press with some fantastic vintages of craggy wines and he um joined a company called naked wine in the uk and i think they're actually active in australia as well they are. and so i keep seeing them on my facebook feed yeah um and so they they have a really interesting model where they get people who love wine to be, I think they're called wine angels, and they basically pledge money to a particular winemaker to make wines. Um, sometimes before before the grapes are even harvested, and again, that's that's a that's a a way of the market for wine changing. Sounds like um, trying to trying to put on a, a Broadway production. You have backers, you know, and then they yeah, get dividends. Exactly, and 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 wine, and I mean, I guess that's the same way as 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 we're funding the book to a certain degree. Is that like these books are really expensive to produce? Um, there's a lot of time involved. There's but particularly travel and and accommodation and those sort of things. So, um, and the market for them is quite small. So the reason we did it this way is that um, under a traditional sort of publishing arrangement where I might get paid royalties or something like that, um, we were simply not going to make enough money to cover the costs of writing the book. Um, and so we decided... So essentially, to- it's, a, it's a way for people to kind of support or like pre-purchase a, a book that they would buy anyway. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly it. So, um, and so both as an individual... Um, an individual sort of wine consumer might want to buy one one copy of the book, and they can get it a little bit cheaper than they would be able to at, the, at, at a bookshop. Yeah, but um, it's also a way of actually 
having the producers be able to contribute to a project like that um, in a really, because a lot of producers do, but in a really transparent um, way, sort of without any obligation. So I, I, I and, and it also means that they can see how valuable, I guess, yeah. you know, that kind of uh, book would be in 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 terms of like seeing how it's financially supported. Um, they can sort of say, well, clearly there is a market for yeah. for the for the information, the, the stories to get out. So yeah, we should support it. Yeah, and I mean, from 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 another's perspective, for for the producers, like I mean, a producer could give five hundred dollars, and it actually end up being cost neutral because they get for, for that they're going to get fifteen copies of the book, and. Um, they could then go and and sell those on their online seller doors or in their seller door or or give them as presents to other media or customers. And those are all things that, that they can either cover their costs on or they would be spending money on in another way anyway. Yeah. And so um so yes, it's sort of it's a way of sort of engaging those producers, but I think in an in an ethical way, because I don't think it's ethical to go out to producers and go, I'm trying to write a book. Give me five hundred dollars so your winery can be in the book. Cash for comment. Uh, yeah, cash for comment. Um, I mean, I know people who I know. I mean, there's been a bit of a furor over here about that whole system of cash for comment. Um, well, same here, same everywhere. I think. Yeah, and and it's it's certainly a business model, um, but but the way I did it with Brood and the way I've done it with um, Aotearoa Nouveau is, I mean, with Brood it was really simple. It was every brewery in New Zealand. That was a pretty big. Um, mission. Whereas for Aotearoa Nouveau, I've said there's going to be roughly 65 producers featured in it. Um, I've given a list of about 50 of the 50 that I that I that I know are the right sort of brewery or right sort of winery. Sorry, that I that I, that are going to be featured. But there's there's room for more. Um, and I mean, 65 to a certain degree is an arbitrary number because if it needs to be 100, it'll be 100. Um, and I've said who those people are. And I've said, look, if you want to support the book, I'd love you to, but you don't have to. And mm. whether you support the book or not is going to have absolutely no bearing on whether you're in the book. So there is that transparency or, then. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then also people can go and see on the Kickstarter page, hey, this winery gave me $500. This winery or this winemaker gave me $40. Um, and so there is also, as well as that transparency, there's also people can judge me on on what I've said. And I mean, so for instance, with with Brood, there are there are some breweries that that supported that I was pretty harsh on. I think Moa is a good example. Um, I was pretty honest about what I thought of their marketing practices, and very very honest about um, sort of the commercial situation that that they were in at the time. And they seem to have done some stuff about that. Um, and likewise, there were breweries that didn't give me anything that I raved about um, because they're good breweries. And so I think partly because now I have a track record, um, I can say, look, this is what I'm doing. Ultimately, if people don't like the model, they don't have to contribute. But there are incentives built into it. I mean, like any other Kickstarter program, you, you, it, it's not necessarily the more you donate the nicer things I'll say about your winery, they they get other forms of um, incentive, if the, you know, for their contribution. Yeah, certainly. I mean, f- I mean, and that's particularly for I mean, particularly for individuals contributing. So, I mean, it starts off with with a book, um, and so we had we had a sort of special deal on the first twenty books, and they're all gone, thankfully. Um, and then it goes up to because we're publishing another um, edition of Brood next year, so you'll get a copy of both Aotearoa and Brood. And then it goes up to sort of more um, more experiences. So there's we're doing a launch dinner at Hillside Kitchen, um, as well as things like I'll come around and cook someone a barbecue or or we'll do a private dinner or, um, yeah, if someone wants to be very, very generous, um, I'll sort of write a bespoke book about whatever their business is. And, I mean, that might be, that could be a winery or it could be a wine brand, for instance, but it actually could be someone who has a different sort of business who goes, hey, this is a really cool project, but actually 
I could really benefit from a professional writer coming in and actually doing a profile book on my business that I can then use as a marketing tool or something else. Hmm. Well, it sounds awesome. And, and the, the Kickstarter campaign as of recording has only just started um, and there's plenty of time for people to, to jump on to the Kickstarter website and support it. Um, for those who might have trouble, like myself, um, particularly working out how to spell that wonderful uh, campaign <laughs> name, what's, a, what's an easier way for them to find it, say, on Google? Um, on, on Google, uh, well, I mean, I guess the, the easiest way to do it, if you don't know, if you can't spell Aotearoa Nouveau is to just go on Twitter and go to Jules Van C at Twitter on Twitter, um, and click on my bio and there's a link straight there. Um, yeah. So if you, if you Google New Zealand wine book Kickstarter, it'll be the second one up there. Okay, cool. And, and are there any other social media uh, accounts that you'd like people to follow you on? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm really active on, on Instagram. It's a little bit boring at the moment because it's largely updates of, of the campaign. But um, outside of that, there's always some really interesting wine, beer and, and other sorts of fun stuff. Um, so that's just Jules Van C. Um, likewise, uh, Twitter is Jules Van C. And then um, on Facebook, you can find either Brood or Aotearoa Nouveau by, by searching their names. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jules, for uh, for joining me today via Skype, and uh, I'm looking forward to following the, the the campaign, and I'm sure it's going to be a great success. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and please do go and support Jules in that uh, fantastic Kickstarter campaign because uh, it sounds like a really awesome book that he's putting together. Uh, of course, you can follow myself on social media at uh, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at the Vincast. Uh, if you'd like to like my Facebook page, you'll find it at facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. And uh, why not come visit my YouTube channel, which is uh, the Intrep it's Intrepid Wino, or one word. Uh, watch some of the videos, particularly the Let's Taste videos where I open up uh, different bottles of Australian wine and just talk about them. Uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button and like and comment some of the videos. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, on any different podcast app, uh, but uh, iTunes being the best one. And please, please leave a rating and review. I'd love to hear from you. All that information, as always, is available at intrepidwino.com. You'll find uh, every episode of the podcast, all of my uh, YouTube videos, and also uh, lots of different writings I've done in the past. You can find out the origin of the Intrepid Wino through my writings about my travels. Uh, I'd love to have you on uh, future episodes of the podcast. Uh, I look forward to, uh, to hearing from you. But until then, bye.